Bibles, if you have them. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, there should be Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Why don't you grab one of those? And let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and uh, we will be starting in verse 28. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, as we continue in uh, the third major section in the Gospel of Matthew, which we call the power of the King, looking at Jesus' power and authority over all sorts of people and all sorts of spheres of life. This morning we'll see that Jesus has power even over the forces of evil, power over demons. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Let's pray. We'll dive in together. Father, thank you for the morning. It is a privilege now to turn to your word. This word of yours you have inspired, you have preserved, and it is authoritative. It is altogether good and altogether trustworthy. And we pray that you would open our eyes as we take a look at the life of your son and his authority over all of life. In particular, this morning, we are so grateful as we encounter and as we look in the news and see that there is evil alive in our world. In all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places, the forces of darkness are alive and well. But we are so grateful that we turn to our powerful king, and he is all-powerful, and he has all authority over all things in heaven and under heaven and on the earth and even below the earth, and he has power even over these forces. And this is good news for those of us who follow him. So open our hearts and open our eyes that we might see ourselves in this story and that we might learn the lessons that you would have for us, we pray in the great name of Jesus again and and all of God's people together said, amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a quick story. At the turn of the uh, 20th century, there was a a writer, an American writer, and his name was Wilson Mincer. You can see his picture on the screen behind me. And he was good buddies with a boxer by the name of Billy, Billy Smith. And uh, they were good friends together, and Billy was a a well-known boxer the turn of the century, and Wilson was a well-known writer. In fact, he was even known to do some sparring himself. And so as the story goes, they are in a bar in San Francisco, and as often happens in bars, they get into a fight with some gentlemen there. And at the end of the fight, uh, they had taken care of all of the gentlemen that they were opposing except for one. Only one was left standing. And although uh, the, the author, Mitzer, continued to, to, to punch and to spar and waylay this guy, the gentleman obstinately stayed upright. He remained standing. Suddenly, uh, the other gentleman, the, the, the boxer, Smith, saw what was going on. He said, Wilson, leave him alone. Leave him alone, Wilson. I knocked him out five minutes ago. Of course, he found this uh, interesting, and so they investigated further. And indeed, that was the case. Smith had knocked out the gentleman cold, but in the process of the fight, had sort of wedged him vertically between two pieces of furniture. And so thus, the, the man was defeated, but he was still standing. Interesting story, and I think it's a good picture for us today, an accurate picture, as we look at our already defeated, but still standing enemy. And of course, we speak of Satan and his minions, the demons. Though Satan is defeated and was defeated by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection upon the cross, friends, Satan is still standing, if you will. He is still throwing punches today. So it's, it's of great encouragement that as we turn to our passage, we see that Jesus is God's son. 
that Jesus is God's son, and as God's son, he has authority over each and every force of evil that opposes his kingdom and that opposes his children. If you were with us last week, you saw that we began the second set of three miracles that Matthew records for us in this section. Each of these three miracles shows us that Jesus has power and he has authority over various aspects or elements of this fallen world in which we live. Now, we saw last week that Jesus and his disciples were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. The storms uh, arose and we saw that Jesus has power over nature. He has power over nature. This morning, we're going to see that he not only has power over nature, but he has power over forces of evil, over demons. As we get the first of five, the first of five accounts of uh, exorcisms that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first of five. Well, the text unfolds to us in three major movements. It's pretty easy to follow. First of all, we see the danger. We see the danger posed to the disciples as they cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in verse 28. We see the danger in verse 28. Next, we see Jesus' interaction with the demons. We see the demons and their interaction with Jesus in verses 29 through 32. Finally, we see the departure. That is the departure of Jesus as he leaves that place um, really on unwelcome terms. And we'll see that in a moment. The danger, the demons, and the departure. So let's begin, if you have your Bibles open, in verse 28 with the danger. The text reads this way. When he, speaking of Jesus, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. So if you recall and you were with us last week, the disciples had a bit of a terrifying situation, did they not? After the terrifying and the mind-blowing miracle on the Sea of Galilee as Jesus' disciples were faced with what they thought was imminent death and danger on the seas, certainly they had to be thankful to set their feet on dry ground again, right? They had the scare of their lives. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus and, of course, his disciples, they they arrive. They arrive at the other side of the lake. They get to their destination. It's the Gentile side of the lake. Matthew says it's the region known as the Gadarenes, which is an indication of a larger region. You can see on the map behind me sort of where they are. They, They crossed over to this particular region, And when they arrive to this region, they encounter, the disciples encounter what must have been an equally terrifying sight. You can see one uh, um, artist's rendition of of this, hopefully after, there we go, um, of what they encountered, right? If, if, If the winds and the waves scared them, what they encountered next must have been at least equally terrifying in their sight. Two demon-possessed men, Matthew tells us. 
They were coming from the tombs and they met Jesus. Here in this verse, we learn some important details about these men and about the encounter. First of all, we are told that there are two of them. Now that's really not of great importance unless you read the Gospel of Mark and you read the Gospel of Luke because the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke focus on one man in particular. They focus on the most vocal and they focus on the most violent. But Matthew here gives us a fuller picture. While there was one and he was leading the charge, so to speak, there were actually two demon-possessed men. Second, we also learn uh, of their state. It's important, right? Matthew... um, gives this to us of first importance to what kind of men? Demon-possessed men. Matthew wants us to know this, the, the nature of the type of men that Jesus and his disciples encountered. They were demon-possessed, meaning a demon, or in this case, we learn from the other Gospels, a, a legion of demons. A legion in the Roman army was 2,000. And so what we have here was that these men were filled not with one demon, but with many, many demons. Demons, of course, are fallen angels. They are under the headship of the chief fallen angel, that of, that of Satan. And they have gained control in this particular case with these two men, of these men's, of their wills, of their minds, and even of their bodies. They were demon-possessed. Third, we learn that these men came from the tombs. That's a detail that is of interest to us. That is, they made their abode in the place of death. They were comfortable among the dead. Tells us something of Satan and the forces of evil and what their intentions are. And so they come from the tombs and they meet Jesus. We are also told that they were so violent. These two men were so violent that nobody in the region dare pass that way. See, the locals knew that, that that graveyard, that those tombs, that's where those guys were. So you don't go that way. You don't go that path, right? That's their territory because they were violent. Because men and women, Satan and his minions are violent. It's the nature of evil. They, these men were violent towards others. And, and now they leave their home among the dead and they make a beeline. This is the picture. Jesus and his disciples step out of the boat onto dry land, and this is what they meet. These two men must have been a terrifying sight, are making an intentional path right to Jesus. And so we see the danger, if you will. We move from the danger then in verse 28 to the demons in verses 29 through 32. And we, first of all, see their plight in verse 29. What, what was the, the destination, the end result of these demons? We see their plight in verse 29. We see their plea in verses 30 through 32 with Jesus. And then finally, in verse 33, we'll see their pigs just to make it a perfect three Ps, right? Let's begin with their plight in verse 29. So they approach Jesus, and this is what they say. What do you want with us, Son of God? It's important what they call him. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. 
Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So Matthew records for us two questions, and both of the questions are revealing to us. The first question reveals that they recognize who this man was. They know who Jesus is better at this point than the the disciples know who Jesus is. They approach him. The other gospels say that that these men, they, they bowed down before him. They knew who he was. They say it. He is the son of God. In the NIV, it's translated, what do you want with us? It's sort of a Hebrew idiom. It means What have we in common, right? What business do we have with one another? It's highlighting the vast difference between who Jesus was, the eternal and holy and sinless Son of God, and who they are, fallen angels full of evil and destruction. They know who he is. He's the Son of God. And then they ask, a very significant question. Have you come here to torture us before the time? See, they recognized their plight. You don't have to turn there, but at some point, turn to the last book in the Bible. Go home and turn to Revelation chapter 20. And we get this great picture in Revelation chapter 20 of the final victory of God over evil. And there in verse 10, we see that Jesus ultimately will cast both Satan and his demons into the eternal lake of fire where where they will be forever and ever and ever. And so evil will finally be rid in this world. And this is what the demons knew. They knew this. And so they said, have you come here to send us there before the appointed time? It's fascinating. These demons... Those who struck terror into the hearts of their victim, now they were victims of fear themselves. They knew who they were dealing with. This was the Son of God. This was their ultimate judge. And he could send them there that instant. And so they trembled before the Son of God. You know, occasionally Shelley will will tell me with our, our youngest, Dever, he's just over two, that when he is disobeying her, doing something that he's not supposed to do, that she will ask him something like, Dever, are you disobeying me? Are you, are you doing something you're not supposed to do? What happens when you disobey? And she says that sometimes he'll simply respond by covering his rear end like this with his hands, right? That's his response. Because he knows the inevitable does he not? He knows the inevitable, but of course he wants to forestall it. And friends, that's what the demons wanted to do as well. They knew their inevitable plight, but they wanted to forestall it. And so we move from their plight to their plea in verse 30 and 31. Some distance from them, Matthew tells us, a large herd of pigs was feeding. 31, the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, before their plea is given, Matthew tells us, right, he sets the scene for us, if you will. There is a large herd of pigs, and they are feeding there. This confirms to us a couple things. This confirms to us that this is indeed a Gentile region, 
Matthew confirms that Jesus and his disciples have left the friendly confines, so to speak, uh, of of the, the, the Jewish area of the lake, and they are now in Gentile territory. There are pigs there, and that confirms also that these two men, these two two demon-possessed men, these are Gentile demon-possessed men, and we'll see why that matters here in a moment, because the Jewish people, they wouldn't eat pigs, they wouldn't raise pigs, right? So this is Gentile territory, and there, there are pigs that are there, and so the demons see these pigs, and they plead with Jesus, if you are going to drive us out of these two men, instead of sending us into the eternal abyss, just let us inhabit them. Let us inhabit the swine. They plead with Jesus. They want to avoid and evade premature judgment. And so in verse 32, he said to them, go, go. So they came out, that is of the two men, and they went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they died in the water. It's fascinating to me, if you've been with us throughout these last few weeks in chapter 8, we have seen, let's say, three, four, this is our fifth miracle that is recorded in chapter 8. And in each and every miracle, Jesus shows his authority and demonstrates his power by performing miracles, how? With a word, right? He just says it. And it happens. And it's, it's here as well. And these two men, these poor, oppressed men, they were freed. They were freed from their oppressors with this simple, authoritative command. Go, said Jesus. And they did. And they went out. And Matthew records to us what, for us what happened why does he give us these details? Why, why is it important that we know that the pigs rushed down a steep bank into the lake? It might have looked even something like this. This is a, a, a steep bank on the very a Sea of Galilee. We don't know if this was the exact place, but this sort of formation was very common, in particular in the region, the eastern side of the lake that Jesus was on. And so it's very likely that then the demons possessed these pigs and they just went mad and they went down the hill all the way into the lake and they drowned themselves there in the lake. Why does Matthew tell us this? For two reasons, I think, at least. Number one, to confirm that these men, they actually were healed. The other gospel writers tell us some additional details about the men, and we'll get there in just a moment. But Matthew wants us to know that Jesus healed these two men, and he also wants us to know, he wants to highlight yet again the destructive and the deadly nature of Satan and the forces of evil in our world. Well, we've seen the danger and the demons. Let's close the story with the departure. This is where the story gets really interesting. As if two demon-possessed men and pigs going crazy were not interesting enough. We see the departure in verse 33 and 34. First, the, the story is told by the, uh, the, the pig herders, what had happened, and then a stand is taken. Notice, the stories told of what just took place in verse 33. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. 
So this may be a, a, an over-simple observation, but do you think that if you were one of those pig herders, just say you're them, you're there and you're tending you know, to the pigs and you see some activity over there and you notice there are those men, those two demon-possessed men, they're out there, but they're talking with some man and a group of people, when they're just kind of you're, you know, tending the pigs and you're watching, you're watching what's going on. And then all of a sudden, as you're watching over there, your pigs start to go nuts. They, they're just crazy. And they take off and they kill themselves. Do you think that would catch your attention? Do you think you'd want to go tell someone? Of course you would, right? Something just happened here and you witnessed it. And so you run into town and you're telling your family and you're telling your friends, my pigs just died. All of our income just went away in the sea. There they are. And this guy, he just landed, he had something to do with it. And so they go and they, and they tell, but notice the order. The order here is very significant, right? Those who were tending to the pigs, they, they went to town and they reported all of this. What did they report first? The death of the pigs, right? They reported the death of the pigs and what had happened to the demon-possessed men. The order is significant. Matthew hints here at a misplaced priority among the Gentile people. He hints that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, have some sort of uh, misplaced love, some sort of idolatry problem. And it becomes very clear in verse 34. The story is told, then the stand is taken. Verse 34. Then... The whole town went out to meet Jesus. All of Cisna Park goes out to the lake, right? The whole town stops what they're doing. They want to see what has taken place. So we all leave our shops and our farms and our homes and we all go, right? We just, everybody goes. They want to know what took place. And when they, verse 34, and when they saw him, Jesus, they, wait right there, don't look at your Bible, don't look at the screen, all eyes right here, just for a moment. What do we expect the text to say? What would be reasonable, right? The whole town went out to meet Jesus. They saw him, and they, what? They fall at his feet in worship. That'd be a good way to end the story, right? They marvel at his power. They want to know who he is. That'd be appropriate. They thank him for healing these demon-possessed men who were such a threat to their community, right? That would be great. What does the text say? And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. What? What? Why? It's clear, I think. Dr. Carson from up at a Trinity in Chicago says this. They preferred pigs to persons. Swine to the Savior. It's as clear as day, is it not? What was hinted at in verse 33 becomes very clear in verse 34. This town 
cared more about their pigs and their money than they cared to entertain and discover and inquire about who this man was, right? They would rather tolerate two men controlled by 2,000 demons in their region than a man who can free them from the grips of Satan and sin. That's their choice. So, here's how we're going to close our time. We've seen the danger, the demons, and the departure. Now I want us to see about four, uh, four application points. I'll call it the, the deduction. What can we learn from this story? Lots of things. I'll boil it down to four. Number one, we are like the men in this story. We are like the men in this story. Now hold on, you may say. As far as I know, I've never been possessed by demons. And I never have either. Certainly, I don't mean that we are all demon-possessed or have been or will be. No, what I mean is this. Matthew here, in Jesus' first encounter, his first ministry encounter in the Gentile world, is, is using these two men's sort of as a type. Matthew is saying, this is the typical Gentile. And Jesus meets them here. This is the classic Gentile. It's, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a portrait of, of, of those of us, before we meet Christ, before we come to know him, what is our life like? This account is a picture of what it looks like to be under Satan's dominion, and then to be delivered by Jesus, and to be placed under his dominion. It is a picture. The great Bible teacher Warren Wearsby says this, of this story. He says, this dramatic incident is most revealing. It shows us, number one, what Satan does for a man. Satan robs him of sanity and self-control, fills him with fears, robs him of the joys of both home and friends, and if possible, condemns him to an eternity of judgment. He goes on to write, It also reveals what society does for a man in need. It restrains him. It isolates him. It threatens him. But society, he writes, is unable to change him. And then third, see then what Jesus Christ can do for a man. And then he writes, what Jesus did for these two demoniacs, he will do for anyone who comes to him in need. See, these men, they were conquered by the devil, were they not? They were conquered by the devil. But guess what 1 John 5, 9 says? Of each and every person before they trust in Christ, we know that we are children of God, John writes, and that the whole world, those who aren't children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Friends, before we became Christians, whether you knew it or whether you did not, you were under the control of the evil one. Just like these men. These men lived in the darkness. They lived in death, did they not? They, their homes were the tombs of dead people. And guess what? We lived in the darkness before we came to Christ. And we were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, Paul writes, you were 
dead in your transgressions and in your sins. Heard a great story this week of Erwin Lutzer, the well-known pastor up at Moody Bible Church in Chicago, that he would take his teaching, his preaching class, these young men who wanted to be preachers, and he would take them, and he would have them uh, prepare a sermon, and he would take them to a local cemetery, and there at the local cemetery, he would have them give uh, their sermons to the tombstones. I've never done that before. Maybe I should. He would have them preach to the tombstones. And he would give, he would have them give an invitation. All who want to receive Jesus, come forth from the dead. Right? He would have them give an invitation to the tombstones. And then he would make the point that, friends, the Bible says that each and every person without Christ is spiritually dead. And in Greek, dead means dead. They are unable to respond to the gospel without the intervention of the Holy Spirit to bring them back from the dead. Friends, this is, this is our story. These two men, were they hostile to God? Bet they were. We were hostile to God before we came to Christ. Colossians 1, 21, Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. Enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But when Jesus heals these two men, we are told from Mark's gospel that they, three things. Number one, that they were sitting there. They were sitting down. Two, they were dressed. They were naked before that. They were dressed. And number three, they were in their right minds. And that one of them, one of them wanted to go with Jesus. He's like in the boat when, when they're ready to go, or he's with them on the road, right? Here are the disciples ready to follow Jesus, and guess who's, guess who's at the end of the line? One of the demon-possessed men. They want to follow. This guy wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Here's your job. You go away into the Decapolis, the, 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 the region of 10 cities, and you tell them how much I have done for you. Jesus gave this man a mission. Friends, let me ask you. Is this true of us as well? When we come to faith in Christ? We too are seated, in a sense. Paul says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, are we not? Paul says that we too go from being spiritually naked to being dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says this, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. And we too, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Friends, after our conversion, do we want to follow Christ like this man? Yes, we do. Do we have the commission to go and tell others what Jesus has done for us? Yes, we do. Brothers and sisters, we are like these men. This is our story. Number two. We can learn from the demon's words. Now, before you gasp, hear me out here. Remember the commercials? I think they were in the 80s or maybe the early 90s. Um, they were um, the test dummies. And they would ride in the cars, and they, they would get smashed, right? right? You remember? In fact, they had names. Vince and Larry. If you're old like me, you remember. And they had a motto, right? You remember their motto? You can learn a lot from a... Dummy, right? You can learn a lot from a dummy, right? You know what Matthew's saying in this story? He's saying you can learn a lot from a demon. You can learn a lot from a demon. Think about it. Did the, did the, the demons have good theology? Did they? Yeah. Did they believe that Jesus was God's son? Yeah. 
Did they believe that he was the judge of all? Yeah. Did they believe that they were destined for an eternity in hell along with anyone who would reject God's son? Did they believe that? Yeah, they believe that. Should we believe those things? Yeah, we should. You can learn a lot from a demon. You can. Point number three. We also learn from them about the nature of faith, of true faith. Let me ask you this. The demons had right theology, but did they have faith in Jesus? Shake your head no with me, please. They did not have faith in Jesus. They approached Jesus. They had all the right answers intellectually, did they not? They knew who he was. They submitted in a sense to him. They knew that that he was their judge. But did they turn to him? Did they love him? Did they want to have faith in him? Of course not. Even the demons believe James writes, and they do what? Tremble right? See, the demons had an intellectual understanding, but they had no faith. They, their hearts had not come to a place of repentance and trust in Jesus. So friends, let me ask you, do you have a demon's faith or do you have a disciple's faith? Because a demon faith understands some truth about who God is, but their will will not submit to Jesus. They do not trust in him. So is yours a demon faith or is it a disciple's faith? And finally, number four, oftentimes we care more about the creation of God than God himself. Do we not? We care more about things and stuff and our possessions and our jobs and our work than we do about Jesus. Friends, what is most astounding to me in this story is not that Jesus heals these two demon-possessed people. It's that the, the town who saw what he did asked him to leave. They said, we don't want you. We know what you can do. We don't want you. There's the door. Get out. Friends, I wonder, let me plead with you. Don't repeat the mistake of the people in the city of Gadara. Don't do it. Don't come to church and believe intellectually that Jesus is God's son and then say, I really don't care about that because I've got a job and I've got a family and I've got a career and I've got stuff and I've got a house and I've got all this. I care more about those things than I do about you. Can we do that? I pray that you're not doing that. One writer says, all down the ages of the world, all down through the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers its pigs. Do you refuse the Savior because you prefer your pigs? May it never be. Let's pray. Lord,